0: Hey friends, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey. I am in the studio today with my dear friend, Corey. Corey has been my friend pretty much my entire adult life. We served together in campus ministry starting in 1998, and Corey has been just a long-time faithful friend, along with a partner in ministry. Corey works with our ministry, Living Truth, in the Boston area, where she leads groups for partners and is attending Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And she is on track to become
1: a counselor. And Corey, I am so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for asking me. I'm so glad to be here. And I always love visiting you and being with you and your family.
0: Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, Corey, part of why I wanted to have you on our podcast is because of your personal experience and your professional experience. And a lot of our listeners are women who have gone through sexual betrayal. And I know that is part of your story. And I wanted to talk to you about what our listeners who are ministry leaders can do to support a woman or a man who has gone through sexual betrayal. Mm-hmm. And I'd love your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I've It's actually been great to be in seminary because I'm able to write a lot about this topic and use that time to evaluate and think about what the church can do to be more supportive. Um I I believe strongly that the church can be and will be in the future a safe place for partners. Mm-hmm. And a good place for partners. I think that that can happen.
0: I'm going to pause you just real quick, Corey, because the term partners is something we use a lot within the field of working with men and women who have sexual addiction and or problematic sexual behavior and then their spouses. And we use the term partner widely because there are some situations where... The couple is engaged, but not yet married, and there's a sexual indiscretion or sexual secrets, or sometimes it's a long-term relationship, a committed relationship, but not a marriage covenant. So when Corey uses the term partner, she's referring to the person who is in relationship, committed relationship, whether marriage or dating or engagement, to a person with a sexual addiction or some kind of infidelity or pornography use um, so yeah i just wanted to clarify that
1: that's a good clarification i want to add that um partners are also men yes and so um i think because i think one need that the church has for the shame around the subject to lower significantly is because it is so hard to come forward anyway but especially women who are sexually addicted yeah or men who are partners um, are having an especially difficult time finding mm-hmm. support or coming forward su- for support. And and also, I'm noticing with the younger generation that it's it's hard to find a young couple who do not have this issue as part of their story. Yeah. So it's an important, important topic. And in my words, and a lot of, of what I've written, I feel like it's a pandemic.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the latest statistic, at least about Christian men, and this is a reliable statistic uh, from a Barna study, is that one in three married Christian men admits to having sex with another woman while married. I don't have an accurate statistic about Christian women with regards to actual physical acting out, but we know that pornography use is on the rise, especially among young women. That's the fastest growing population becoming addicted to pornography, and it certainly is high among men. So, so please continue with your story about how can the church be supportive of the person who's experienced the sexual betrayal?
1: Okay. And I want to, I'm going to try really hard to be positive here, but some of my positives come off of negative, but I think that's okay. I think that, you know, we can have these tangible negatives that have happened and try to flip them. Um, One thing is a really key thing is when, when anything sexual happens and it's considered a marriage issue automatically, Um, this is an addiction issue. And um, I think one thing to keep in mind with a partner is they really need to know it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. And there are things that you can do or say that make it feel like it's their fault. Or you might actually believe if you're a leader um, in a church or a ministry, you might actually think in your mind, marriage is 50-50. There's always something on both sides well, and there's an assumption with sexual
0: issues that, well, she must not be very available to him in the bedroom, or if a woman has gained a lot of weight, there's an assumption, oh, well, she let herself go, so he doesn't find her attractive anymore, right. and there's the, this blaming oftentimes of the partner, and I think part of why some people do that, I think sometimes women make that assumption about other women. If they've not experienced betrayal, It because it scares them to see somebody else go through this and if that woman um has a blame in it mm-hmm. then if if the woman who is afraid of that happening it gives her an illusion of control like if i keep myself thin and don't let myself go or if i am having sex regularly with my husband right. then i have control over this not happening to me right. i think all of that is unconscious and think
1: of the pain of that later When you've gone to the gym, you've done everything to take care of yourself. And then he still does it. And then it's you've bought into the lie that it's about you. When in reality,
0: it began long before he ever met you. Yeah, Like most guys exposed to pornography in their early teen years or preteen years. And the use of it and the escalation of it was set in motion long before he ever met you.
1: That is often the case. And even if they say they started after your marriage or if... They did start after marriage. I mean, since the internet was high speed, um, it's just pornography is so accessible that there's no no way that we should think that people aren't going to be struggling with this. And it's a brain changing addiction, so you can't get out of it without help. And you can't get help if you can't come forward. And you can't come forward in a community that has too much that has shame on this subject. Yes. There just needs to be. No shame, but I would say, um, it yeah, it's an important to know that this was not her fault, and that um, I think one of the most painful things that can happen is that, and I, that is that people are automatically sent to marriage counseling or marriage retreats. Yes. and this is let me let me say why I think that that's marriage is a fifty fifty relationship, or and I've also learned it's a hundred percent, a hundred percent, like. Both people giving all that they can. Uh, When you go into a marriage counseling office, you have to be very vulnerable. And if one person is lying, which goes hand in hand with addiction, um, it's not a safe place. And also, then you're trying to work on things that aren't the issue. And this is what I always tell women. If I'll say this to church leaders, if a person came to you, if a man came to you and said, "I'm a meth addict," I need some help. It's my assumption that you're not going to say to him, well, first go get your wife, get into marriage counseling, and then we'll go from there. Right. And um, if porn is being used as an addictive substance, I, I think that's th- that's the same thing. Like mm-hmm. you need to treat the meth addiction. You need to treat the alcohol. You need to treat the gambling. You need whatever the addiction is. It is meeting a need for that person that marital love and intimacy was never created or intended to meet. Mm -hmm. And I've known women who, you know, and often too, you know, women are asked, well, have you been available sexually? Yeah. Well, often porn addiction um, causes the the man not to want to have sex with his wife. Absolutely. That happens a lot. Yeah. So you, you have a wife coming to you who... You know, she's not having sex. She wants to be having sex with her spouse the way that she thought it would be. Mm -hmm. She feels rejected. And then you're asking her if she's been available enough. That's like double adding insult to injury. It is. It's adding insult to injury. So do not assume if there's a pornography problem that it's because she's not available because often she's been very available, but he's Mm -hmm. not available anymore because his mind and heart have been given over to something else.
0: And studies show that when men are using pornography regularly, their ability to even have an erection with a normal human relationship is diminished. And there is actually a new diagnosis Mm -hmm. called porn-induced erectile dysfunction. So the assumption oftentimes is that if somebody is into porn, they're probably going to be hypersexual and want to have Intercourse with their spouse, but in fact, oftentimes it's quite the opposite.
1: And I've worked with women who's who um, are married to an addict who put such incredible pressure on them sexually, constantly. Mm -hmm. And that's not the intention of marital sex either. It's not to use someone else. So I think I think one form of objectifying a woman is considering your wife as a receptacle for your lust. Yeah, that, that's not God's intention for no. marital love. And you know what? The sad thing in the church is sometimes there are a couple verses that are used to support that idea. And it might not be said that straight out, but like you're, you know, you exist. Your purpose as a wife is to help your husband, not to lust. And you know what? I have to say this. Lust is never intended to be anywhere in a marital relationship. The wife is not a receptacle or a cooler down of lust that marital sexual relationship is about unselfishness. Mm-hmm. It's about giving. It's about connecting mm-hmm. its intimacy. There's no place outside of the marriage for lust and there's no place inside the marriage for lust. Um, so I think that's been a, the, um, a mistake in thinking. And, um, I'll do a different podcast on my ideas about the objectification of women. Yes. Um, but I think that they happen in several ways. And that's one of them is that, you know, you're married and that is your job. And, you know, I work with women that who when they are, when they feel that when they have sex, that they're being taken from yeah. over and over and over again and not being given to, right. not being seen, that's exhausting and it makes them feel like trash it makes them feel used it's and, and, and they are being yeah. used yes. they're definitely being used it is not okay to do anything you want inside of marriage right that's a that's a selfish attitude we're, we're always right. not considering other people in a as from a worldly point of view yeah. this person is not for my use this person is for me to give something to mm-hmm. so so well said Corey. Thank you. Oh, I think about these things a lot, I know. as you know. I know. Um, yeah. I I think it's because um, I would really would love to see spiritual communities become a better place for partners. Mm-hmm. And I think it's and for a, the
0: church to talk about all that stuff that you just said. I mean, like about healthy sexuality and what mm-hmm. it is and what it is not.
1: Right. Yes. Because I think the. The pressure has been put on women a lot in that area in the yeah. past in these talks, like about being available. You know, men want to have sex more than women. Right. So you need to be more available. And, and there's you know, an assumption that men
0: will burst if they don't have sex every
1: three days, which is a myth. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you, men who have been addicted to porn or sex for their whole, for, since they were 12, um, taking a break and having sobriety is relieving and freeing. And I've, you know, I've heard. Leaders say, "Well, you know, you can't be married and keep sex from your husband from that long of a time." Well, for one thing, oftentimes the addict is keeping sex from the spouse, right? By by having this other relationship. Um, Lori Hall calls it an affair of the mind. Yeah. The first book I ever read on the subject. I think that when a person, I'll say a person, has been crossing over their own sexual values. Mm-hmm misusing sexuality for so long to get to a point where they can take a break from it Mm -hmm. can be very relieving and healing.
0: It's healing to the brain too, because it allows the brain to start to heal from all of the wiring between lust and sex and between objectification and sex. And instead, the person can start to work on developing intimacy with the spouse. I don't mean sex. I mean connection. And I mean trust. And I mean communication. And I mean deepening love in other ways. And then when the brain starts to heal, and a lot of therapists that work in this area of sexual addiction recommend a 90-day period of, of a break. Yeah. From uh, pornography use for sure. Yeah. Hopefully it'll go longer than 90 days. I mean hopefully forever because Jesus said yeah. that he came to set us free.
1: Yeah and-, and that amount of time can give your brain and your heart enough of a break mm-hmm. to remember that you like it better. that like I like how I feel better when I'm not using. Yeah, it's, but that's it, it, with anything, you know, detoxing from anything is going to be a difficult. Time period.
0: Yeah. And some people do actually have massive physical withdrawal symptoms when they stop using pornography, when they stop having a regular orgasm and they think that means, oh, I really need this. But it's really that your body has been hijacked. Your brain has been hijacked
1: yeah. by the
0: overuse and misuse of your sexuality. And once you detox mm-hmm. from all of that and you can start to rewire the brain, you realize like I was craving this in an out of control and inflated kind of way.
1: Yeah. And I want to say to the younger generation with while there's a microphone in front of my mouth, (laughs) I would really like to say to the younger generation that um, there's no reason that, you know, you guys grew up with phones in your hands, so much access to pornography. And as a parent, I parented in a time when parents were becoming addicted to their phones at the same time that their kids were. And so we didn't know what it was gonna be like. We hadn't figured out how to balance all of that. We and then our kids were faster learning it. Mm-hmm. And so they got into things that we didn't even know were there. Yeah. First of all. You know, we we thought we were making our homes safe. We didn't know that the internet had invaded our homes and that like even if we put blocks on our kids' phones or on our TVs, that they'd go over to their friend's house who has a phone or they go to the playground. And you know they're all gathered around a phone watching pornography. Mm-hmm. It it was uncontrollable. It was uncontainable, and it still is. It but is. I'm I'm hopeful for this next generation that they know mm-hmm. more. Um, I love the group. Um, what's the the group fight the new drug? Yes, that um, it's young people. Um, I love the website NoFap uh-huh. because it's it's young people that are saying we don't want pornography in our lives anymore. This is ruining our relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm so thankful to Living Truth existing and being a place where people can go with no shame to get help. And so to the young generation, please don't stay in shame about this. It there's no there was almost no way around it, you know? It was it was put in our hands. And if you parented during that time period, I also want to give you a lot of grace because mm-hmm. I think now I'm just learning how to balance it myself. You know, I'm just learning yeah. how to not be addicted to my smartphone. I'm just learning how to do these things. And you know what? As a parent, you can't pass something on that you weren't given. Mm-mm. And let that sink in for a minute, because I think there's probably a lot of things as parents that we think, "What well, you know, I didn't teach that to my kids. Well, if you didn't learn it, if it wasn't instilled in you, you can't pass it on. Right. To your I, children. I like to
0: say that we're a bunch of digital immigrants raising digital citizens.
1: I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, that's what we were given. That's the generation we live in. And mm-hmm. now we're able to evaluate it a little bit better. But I have yeah. a lot of hope for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm hoping that shame is not a part of their path Yeah, on this subject, you know.
0: So that was all a lot of really good stuff. I think our audience will get a lot from. And I'm going to go back to my original question. I'm yes. glad we went into all of what we just talked about right now. Me too. But back to the question of what do you think ministry leaders could do? Pastors, mm-hmm. parachurch organizations, small right. group leaders, when sexual betrayal implodes a marriage, mm-hmm. how could they support the the wife,
1: the the husband, the partner? Okay. Um. So try to really keep in mind it's this is not her fault mm-hmm. and try to set aside in your mind your fears fears about them getting divorced fears about anything and i think she needs tangible tangible support um th- this journey is long sometimes and the goal is as it always is with jesus is that these people are restored mm-hmm. to relationship with him and healed um so i I want to tell people to consider these women as widows in yes. many ways. I think we know how to help widows in the church and then suddenly you have this partner and that nobody knows what to do with her. Mm-hmm. You know, like we want to support both of you and I'm I'm not going to go into anything about the addict right now. I think he desperately needs support or she. Yeah. Um but go to her house. Um, rake her leaves. If she needs help financially, you know, some women lose their jobs. Um, I want to say emphatically, don't fire her from a job that she has.
0: Yeah. If she's in ministry, a lot yeah. of times we shoot our wounded.
1: Oh my gosh. And yeah, blame so,
0: the spouse or give her
1: consequences yeah, for what her
0: husband has right.
1: done. And and that's another like m- meta message that she did something to cause it. Right. Because why is she being punished? Or that
0: she was in, in cahoots with yeah, what he had done.
1: It is. And so so think about her. Her world is falling apart. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, a, a widow has a funeral yes. to help her with the deaths that she's had in her right. life.
0: And corporate grieving. Whereas yes. this is this a has nothing. disenfranchised grief is what I learned from Jacob Porter.
1: Yeah. Jacob Porter says disenfranchised grief. And I've also heard from Elaine Boss. And it's, it's an ambiguous loss. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's an ambiguous loss, which is a, that was a helpful and a great term for me through this, um, that, you know, there's no funeral, there's no help. Um, there's nothing to mark anything. And some Mm -hmm. of our, I I really appreciate the living truth groups and the women in the battle, because, you know, we can do things together to mark the Mm -hmm. loss and to talk about the loss Mm -hmm. and even, and grieve together. And as as at a funeral, if you've had a family funeral, you know that there's a lot of grief and, and room to cry. And there's also a lot of laughter because you're sharing stories and you're all coming around this person that you knew. And so the, that's kind of how I see the groups and why it's helpful to get in a group Mm. because, um, you're not alone. And so women need to feel like they belong somewhere. And if, if they don't, Feel like they belong in the church anymore, Mm -hmm. which often happens, yeah, because it's because nobody wants to touch the subject. And I think part of that is the problem that it's a pandemic. That I think that so many other people are dealing with this and don't know what to do with it, Mm -hmm. that there's not a lot of help for that couple. Um. So yeah, go to her, go to her house. Don't no shoulds. You should right. come to church. You should come to this group. Because
0: a lot of women get a lot of anxiety about going and being around social situations where people don't know the, know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time a guy coming up to me and saying, "Hey, how's it going? Is it all marital bliss? At oh. this point, I had been divorced for a good year, fortunately, so I wasn't raw. And bleeding emotionally, but mm-hmm. still it took it completely caught me off guard that he asked me that. He had no idea I had been through loss of my marriage. And right. um, but imagine when that wound is fresh and the marriage has blown up and maybe the addict has moved out for a therapeutic separation, you know, and people are asking questions about how you doing, how's your spouse and all this stuff? It is yeah. so anxiety producing. It is. So a lot of women do need to take a break and have some space from being in a lot of bigger social situations Mm -hmm. and they need more just one-on-one or really small group support from people who know what's going on with her.
1: Right. I I agree 100% Kristen. And I think that the United States is a very extroverted culture. And so church is the same. We go to church on Sunday and it's just like, it's overwhelming. And, um, yeah, I think anything you can do to go to her is really, really helpful because Yeah. yeah, she doesn't, You wouldn't ever say to a widow, like, you should come to church. You'd probably be going to her house and asking Mm -hmm. her what she needs. Oh, and And, people
0: would be bringing her meals. And I know recently one of my leaders in Women in the Battle had said that her next door neighbor, who was supposed to be in a big um, drama production at a local church, broke his leg right before the production and so couldn't be in it. And everybody knew about it and everybody was bringing casseroles to his house. And at that same time that he had broken his leg, she had a new discovery that her husband had been continu- t- continuing an affair with an affair partner. And um, she was demolished. She was yeah. devastated. She could had a hard time caring for herself and yeah. her three children. But she couldn't tell anybody Right. In her community outside of women in the battle. Uh-huh. And nobody was bringing her casseroles no. from the broader community. So if there is a way for a church to allow a woman to let people know what she wants them to know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have said in our community when there have been crises. We have said sometimes that. Um, this person, let's say Mary, is having a family crisis without any details at all because that is Mm -hmm. her business. Mm -hmm. But would everybody sign up to do a meal train or whatever? There is a way that small groups and churches and ministry leaders could provide support without giving information
1: to people and just call it a family crisis. That's a great idea, Kristen. I'm glad you said that. be
0: open to um, suggesting that woman put a cooler on her front porch for people to leave food in the cooler because the last thing she needs is to have to take people into her home and give them an update on how mm-hmm. she's doing. Now, if she wants that, mm-hmm. she can ask for that. And you can ask her, would you like this? Or give her the choice, would you like me to leave it on your front porch? Yeah,
1: that what you just said right there, even on covering in every area, what do you need? Yes. Like if you just could ask her tell me what you need she might not know what she needs a lot of women don't know what they need because
0: let me know if you need anything is 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 a different question yeah
1: that's a different Um, people
0: ask that a lot and women who are shell-shocked by their betrayal do not know what they need in that moment they're Mm -hmm. they're they're frozen with the trauma of this or they're Mm -hmm. like frantic and what they've what they really need is for their husband to recover and for the marriage to be restored and stuff that nobody has any control over except for her and her spouse and namely him yeah but but when you come to them and say i have some ideas Mm -hmm. of ways that we could serve you Mm -hmm. here's the ideas a meal train raking your leaves doing um fixing your toilet and let it them breaks. choose and let them choose what they want but give them tangible ideas instead of a nebulous do you need that's anything? a great
1: that's a great idea that's a really good idea and I I was in a life group for several years and we had three widows that we reached out to and it that was that was so much fun to do together and I think that one of them never ever came to church there was no like you should come over here you should do this one of them did join our group And, um, but it was just the, it was just the gift of helping somebody who, you know, someone has a loss that none of us want to have. Right. And what can we do to come alongside them? And so I just wish, I just just think if you looked at a partner Mm -hmm. more as a widow, Mm -hmm. a porn widow, I've heard, I've heard that term. My group did not like that to her. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I brought that up own. one time. The, no, I know. <laughs> no, but if you could just think that way, I, I know there are things in your brain that you would know how to do to help a widow. Yeah. Take out your judgments. I mean, we like to judge people's situations. And when you don't consider her a widow, it's probably because you're thinking in your mind, like identify what your judgments are like. Yeah. Well, she's not a widow. I mean, probably she had something to do with it or
0: Yeah, or he's still alive. He could do these things. That that I've
1: seen. That I think I've seen.
0: Absolutely. And And they don't realize that that I think I've seen he has become a source of danger for her. Yes. Like her brain, if she seems crazy. When she talks about him, it's not that she's crazy, she is traumatized. Yeah. And the brain goes offline, the, the logic center of the brain, the prefrontal cortex goes offline, mm-hmm. when there is danger, and the fight, flight or freeze primitive brain kicks in, which can look very erratic. Mm -hmm. And very like crazy, but it's not craziness. It's she's traumatized, and so to ask to expect him to be the one to give her what she needs is not realistic at all because she perceives him as a source of danger.
1: No, and they can keep supporting him a hundred percent, but like she doesn't want him coming over and raking the leaves necessarily. And I do think I think I've seen that attitude. I've never heard it verbalized, but you know that communication is not mostly verbal. But communicated like, well, he should be helping you. Well, yeah. he should be the one doing this. Well, he's still alive. He can come over and do that. And yeah, it's not recognizing how traumatized and dangerous of a situation that she feels that she's in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, treat her, treat her like if you just in your own mind, think of her as a widow and do what you would do to help a widow. And don't should. On anybody, mm-hmm. you should do this. You should do that. And she, uh, she needs to belong. She needs a place of belonging. So, anything you can do to keep her involved in a community is if really good if she wants to. If she wants to. But I mean, don't don't say just because she's not. You know, the yeah. church is not the walls of a building. If she's not going to church, um, go to her. Isn't that what the church does? The church goes mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those situations to do that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: You know. Corey, one of the things about you that I think is so amazing and incredible is how much perseverance you have had in your betrayal trauma uh, recovery journey. And I just wonder if you have anything to say to men and women who are going through betrayal and the recovery process is taking a lot longer than they ever expected it would.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say it takes time and patience to walk this journey. And I think a lot of, sometimes, I'm just going to say husbands in this case because that... It's just easier to use that, yeah. Yeah, um, want a checklist. Like, give mm-hmm. me a list of things to do and I'll do it and then we'll be better. But um, when when trust is broken in a relationship, it takes a long time to heal. It takes actions, not words. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really help to hear, um, you know... It does help to hear I'm sorry, but it doesn't do anything. It's like it doesn't repair. I'm sorry. It doesn't repair anything. So repair takes place over time and consistency of telling the truth. Mm -hmm. I would say I'm not even saying no relapse. I'm just saying telling the truth about it because it's the truth that's been injured. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like the finding out that you didn't even know who this person was. That's the injury. But um, I want to say to Partners, um, you don't have to make a decision right now. If you're in a crisis right now, this really helped me when people said this to me. You do not have to make a huge decision right now. You mean like divorce? Yeah, your world separation. just fell apart. Yeah, and you know, I would have thoughts in my head like, "Gosh, I'm so stupid if I stay," or "I'm mm. what if I what if I do the wrong thing? What if I make the wrong decision?" And it just really relieved me because what I wanted was for things to heal, but yeah. so much of it was out of my hands, Right. you know, because um, one of the best things I was told were the three C's, I didn't cause this addiction, mm-hmm. I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And that's a good thing for church leaders to know too, because I think a lot of times what they do, sending you to marriage counseling or things like this, they're thinking you can cure it mm-hmm. or you can do something to control it, but... Um, I can't do any of those things. Um, so that was a that was a helpful thing for me to know also that um time is okay. I don't have to make a decision that's gonna rock mm-hmm. my family's world right now in this moment, because I just I don't have enough information yet. Right. And so that that was always really helpful. Like you don't have to make a decision right now. And Helped so me.
0: while you had that time period of mm-hmm. extended separation, mm-hmm. you got back to living your life. I, I mean, did. You had to. You had to deal with the shock and the grief and all of the processing that that people have to go through with betrayal. But then you went on to build a career, to go back to I mean, go back to school, do some mm-hmm. things that you love, to use your your pain to love on others who were going through the same thing. I mean, you just lived.
1: I did. And I, um, I, yeah, I want to give some credit to, well, actually I have, I have so many people to give credit to. I, sometimes I feel like I really wouldn't be alive without you. Um, and several friends that, you know, um, I went and saw a a counselor who works with trauma. Um, her name's Diane Langberg. Some of you might Mm -hmm. know her and that she asked me some really good questions. Um, but one of the things she solidified for me was I. I told her like, I don't know who I am. Yeah. anymore. Right. Like I, my and you kids, didn't have a
0: problem with identity before this. No, no. Yeah.
1: My identity went from. Uh, okay, so. Yeah, this is exactly what I said in there. I think is like I was a wife mm-hmm. and a mom, and my my last child was about to go to college. Um, a minister, I lost my job through this. I was also fired for Mm -hmm. trying to go forward to get help with my husband's addiction. I, um, I lost like every role at the same time that I had ever had. Yes. And I think I pretty much said to her, I am nothing. And I Mm -hmm. really felt that way. Of course. Um, and she said, um, she's just such an amazing woman and she has a great book on trauma, but she pointed at me and said, you are not nothing. You are going to be a student with your children. Yeah. And I have thought about that for so many years because as a Christian, you know, you think the right answer, and I'm using air quotes, you think the right answer is, um, you are not nothing. You're a child of God. Right. And I, I've thought for years, like, why did she tell me that? Mm. And um, she gave me what I have coined an identity bookmark mm. for myself that you're going to go on and be a student while your children are students and you're going to get a degree and you're going to have agency and you're going to move forward. And I didn't even know it then when she told me that, but she gave me something to hold on to while my spiritual relationship with the Lord healed because it, it, because of what happened to me, I didn't have that identity anymore either. I didn't belong there either. Mm -hmm. And so she, I just think she's so smart. So I think, um, I talk to women about always having a plan B. Right. And this is what this means. Um, you know, we have a great workbook that we use and there's a, a page in it about having an exit strategy, which I think is can be a good term um, because it's not a plan. Like it's not set in stone. It's a strategy for mm-hmm. if you need it. But some of the women I worked with didn't like that idea of exit. Um, so we came up with plan B, which is I am going to be OK either way.
0: If my husband doesn't recover, mm-hmm. I have some resources. I have financial, yeah. emotional, all the resources that I will need to take care of my children and myself so that I will not be a victim.
1: Yes. And I'll tell you, I worked really hard on my plan B while my husband did the hard, hard work mm-hmm. of recovery and sobriety, Mm -hmm. which are two different things for another podcast, but (laughs) recovery and sobriety. And I didn't know, though, what was going to happen because some of those things weren't in my control. Um, Our marriage died um, and it was resurrected. So it wasn't even just like a reconciliation, but we deemed it as dead. And he did the work and built my trust back again Mm -hmm. for my trust to be resurrected. And I give credit to god for that i give credit to my husband for doing that work mm. um but i have to tell you i still live in my plan b i'm still in my plan b of i'll be okay in this life either way yeah um you know if my husband dies if something happens to to our lives if if this happens to me again which i don't i don't plan on that and i don't sure. live in hyper vigilance anymore and i don't Um, I don't have a lot of the trauma reactions that I had for so long. Um, But a plan B is like, um, yeah, what what am I going to do to care for my family? Mm -hmm. What what kind of financial income am I going to have? What do I um, there were several things I did to secure that through the years. And my husband always helped me with that. You know, I I asked him if I could put the car in my name and he said, of course, I actually asked him if I could put the house in my Mm -hmm. name. And he said, of course.
0: I know women who have sat down with their husbands and asked for him to sign an agreement that if he were to ever have an affair again or a relapse again with pornography or whatever, you know, it depends on the person, that he would provide certain things for her. Yeah. And a, la- a laid out plan. And that what that does, some people would think, oh, that sounds like she's getting ready to leave him. But most women that do that are doing it because they want to settle into the relationship and feel safe and secure again. Right. And having that right. helps them know that they're not staying just because they're dependent on him. They're staying because right. they want
1: to stay. And I, you know what? I'm so glad you said that because I remember one time my husband asked me, I, he did ask like if I was yes. getting ready to leave or Absolutely. something.
0: That's what most people think is you're, this right. you're posturing yourself to leave, but indeed it's not
1: that. No, because I, I felt like I could breathe. If I am okay financially, if something happens, you know, it's, and I told him it's actually because I don't want to stay with you because I'm dependent on you financially I want to stay with you because I love you and I trust you, and yeah. that that actually helped him to breathe. Yeah. Um, and he did ask me when I asked to put the house in my name, if if I was getting ready to leave, and mm-hmm. I I'm so glad he asked that. I'm like, no, that's an honest question. Absolutely not. That yeah. is not my plan. That is not anything to do with my plan. Mm-hmm. My plan B is about I I want to feel secure financially and not dependent on somebody else in case this happens again, mm-hmm. but it really, what it did was it released me to breathe and then to re-engage with him mm. in an honest and intimate way. Yeah, when I wasn't removed a lot of your fear. Yeah. Exactly. When I, when I wasn't afraid about my yeah. security anymore and my security, my financial security wasn't tied to him, then I could re-engage with him, um, and relax. Yeah. And then our relationship can get better because yeah. I'm not, I'm not like emotionally punishing him all the time because right. I'm afraid of my security. Right, I'm just like requesting You're in something. Love yeah, I'm requesting instead. something for help. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What he said to me that was so helpful is I said, "You know, I have this plan B," and he he supports my plan B. And he said to me one time, um, "You know, I don't have a plan B." Mm. So I know it was so sweet. How does that feel? Oh, I just. Well, to tell you the truth, I think he moved back in about 22 days after he said that to me, <laughs> after a four and a half year separation. Wow. I mean, it wasn't like yeah. it was the one thing, right. no, it, was it was like the 250th thing right. that he did, Yes. but it, it was like, you know, him telling me like, I thought for sure when I asked for the house in my name that he might defend, like he needs security too, he needs money, but yeah. when he he said, Sure. I don't even care about the house. If this doesn't work out, I don't have another plan. Right. So I, I knew he w- he was 100% in. And it was okay that I wasn't. Because of his actions, I had to have a plan B. Mm-hmm. But he was 100% in. He didn't have a plan B. He communicated that to me. This is my plan. It is my only plan is to restore, recover, become sober and have a relationship with our family yeah and that built my confidence absolutely and then he gave me tangible reasons to believe he was serious and I think the house was the last final thing that pushed mm. me over the edge to believe like he's serious about this recovery right. and and he you know he's grown a ton and he's been serious about finding support and help from other men and men in the battle is a great group and I, I I wish that ours in my part of the country was as big as this one. Well, I see the men and I'm just someday, so Corey, encouraged. Someday. Yeah. I hope if you are listening to this and you're in the New England area like you know I it's yeah. yeah Get on our me. website
0: living-truth.org. And contact us if you need support. If you are a partner, if you are somebody struggling with unwanted sexual behavior, we would love to be able to support you. Corey, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks for for having sharing on our podcast. Thanks for
1: listening. Yeah. You've given our
0: listeners so much to think about and I hope it was encouraging to all of you out there. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Thank you.